Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27 is our text for today. This is the 10th sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 50 handwritten pages. The title of the sermon today is The Unnatural. Please turn to Romans chapter 1, and as you do, please keep in mind that God loves you. Throughout the preaching of the word today, remember that God loves you for the rest of your life. Remember, please, and never forget that God loves you. Hear the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Our Father in heaven, this morning we would ask, first of all, that we would be reminded and that we would actually follow through more so than ever before in honoring you as God and being thankful to you and worshiping you and you alone. Lord, please, please deliver us from idolatry. Father, I would also pray today for anyone that is caught up in and entrapped in the sin of which I will be speaking this morning. Lord, we do believe that you are able to save and to deliver, to grant repentance, to bestow forgiveness. And Lord, we would ask that for your glory you would do that. Do it even today here in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So the topic about which I will be speaking today is perversion, and here is our outline. Point number one, the root. Point number two, the release. Point number three, the reason. And point number four, the result. The subject matter in today's passage is widely discussed, both in secular society and in Christian culture. Um, It would be fairly easy today to address the topic by simply rehearsing what you hear in the news on a regular basis, or perhaps to cite expressions of it as it appears in entertainment, education, or politics. We could spend a lot of time this morning talking about pronouns, the rainbow flag, or legislation, and perhaps those subjects are worthy of our study. But our approach today is going to be different. I'm going to do the best that I can today to stick to the text of Scripture in Romans 1. I am not going to approach the subject of perversion with a what's wrong with these people and and rant about how God hates them and we should too. Neither am I going to take the fashionable 21st century evangelical soft pedal approach which says sin is sin and this just happens to be one variety of sin, or even the more common expression of, yes, it's wrong, but we need to be loving and gentle and sensitive. 
I have found usually in the sermons or books uh, which so heavily accentuate gentleness and sensitivity uh, that they never actually get around to the yes, it's wrong part of the analysis. So today I am not denying God's disapproval of this sin and his wrath against those who are engaged in it, nor am I denying the need to be compassionate and gentle and loving. I'm simply saying that if we stick today to the text of Scripture, as Paul wrote it in Romans 1, 24 through 27, we will not be led to either one of those extremes, and neither will we be brought to a middle ground. Rather, what will happen if we stick to the text, you will see that we will be led to worship God and to serve Him with all of our hearts. You will see that there is no room in this text today to look down upon or to hate or to make fun of or to belittle or to think yourself better or superior morally to those who are enslaved in this perversion. Likewise, I think if we stick to the text, you will discover that all of the compassion and gentleness and sympathy in the world will not address the deep-seated problem as described by Paul in these verses. All that to say, do not approach the subject with a preconceived idea. Listen, please, with an open mind and an open heart and allow the text of Scripture to shape your understanding. We are studying the New Testament book of Romans. It was written by Paul roughly in A.D. 57. His main goal in writing the longest letter in the New Testament was to clarify some problems and misunderstandings between Jewish Christians, which would make up the minority of the church at Rome, and Gentile Christians who made up the majority of Christians at the church in Rome. But before he gets to that topic, he first has to establish his own credibility, and the way that he establishes his credibility is by thoroughly explaining the gospel, which he does in the first eight chapters of Romans. We so far have covered 23 verses in chapter 1, and in these 23 verses, we have learned a lot about the gospel. For example, we have learned that it reveals the righteousness of God in that all who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ will be saved. The justified one by faith is saved. It also, I think, is very important and very pertinent for reasons of hope and life to those who would be listening to this sermon to accentuate the fact that this passage which we are dealing with today falls within the parameters of Paul explaining the gospel and our need for the gospel. And therefore, it stands to reason that since these verses are included in Paul's description of the gospel, it would stand to reason that those who are hearing this, even if they have fallen into this sin, are candidates to receive and to be saved and helped by this gospel. Now, I am sad to say up front that there will not be a lot of hope or gospel or Jesus in the body of the sermon. That's because I'm going to just be sticking to the text. However, hang in there, spoil alert, stay with me until the end, and you will see a beautiful expression of the love of God in Christ at the conclusion of the sermon, and that will, of course, come from the gospel. But for the next 55 minutes, this is going to be very 
dark. Uh, The last time that we were together, we looked at verses 18 through 23. Uh, In them, we saw the unveiling of God's wrath against ungodliness, and ungodliness is sin which we commit against him. And we looked at God's wrath against unrighteousness, and that is how we sin against one another. So not only are we ungodly and unrighteous, but we learned the last time we were together that we do everything we can to suppress the truth of God. Most commentators think that this section that we're looking at right now uh, in its uh, placement in the book of Romans is focusing primarily upon Gentile sins or Gentile patterns of sin, And I think that they are right, because what follows is not a description of Jews who already have the law of Moses, but it is a description of Gentiles who have not yet received any information about the Almighty, or at least written information about the Almighty. But but it still applies to everyone in, in that Paul says that everyone has enough information simply by looking at nature to know that God exists and that he is infinitely powerful and infinitely brilliant. There's not enough information there for them to be saved. But this information does leave them without excuse because his existence is clearly revealed. But here's what sinful people do with that information, even though it is clear. That is, they do not want to acknowledge God, and they don't glorify him or honor him, and they are not thankful to him. So at this point, what I have to do in my introduction here is I have to interrupt myself and say, let's get started with today's text on the subject of perversion, which brings us to point number one, the root Where does it, that is, this sin of perversion, stem from? Well, our text gives us a clue in the first English word found in verse 24, and that is the word therefore. You cannot start a discussion with the word therefore. The word therefore implies previous communication. So what we need to do is find out what the word therefore is therefore, and we have to go back for just a moment into the previous sermon, into the previous text, and note what was going on, especially in verse 21. And that is, these people, although they had a knowledge of God which was evident to them, number one, they did not honor him or glorify him, and number two, they were not thankful. And as a result of this, what happened to them is that their thinking was turned upside down or twisted. And so they no longer possessed good judgment, certainly not good moral or theological judgment. And their foolish heart was darkened. Now, they professed themselves to be wise, but in reality, they were blind fools, spiritually speaking. And they were not aware of their own dizziness. Uh, Sort of like a drunk who is confident that they can drive safely, these people profess to be wise, but in actuality they are fools, and they do not know that their wisdom has been extracted from them. Uh, Remember what we are on right now. We are talking about the root or the main source of this perversion. And so what happens to these people who are in this altered state, uh, they make a stupid trade. And that is they exchange God, that is the immortal God, for idols and images that resemble mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. So you need to follow the decline. You need to follow the slide. 
God clearly is there, and he has revealed himself in nature. They suppress this truth, they, they embrace their sin, they do not honor or glorify God, and they are not thankful. And so therefore, their thinking is twisted, and they trade and exchange God for idols. That is the root of this perversion as it is spelled out in verses 18 through 23. Now for the next word, the words that follow therefore in 124. Anytime you see therefore, it says that some new information or additional information is about to happen. Well, whatever that information is in the rest of verse 24, you have to understand that the root of it, that is the perversion that we're going to study today, is in verses 18 through 23. Namely, a failure to honor and glorify God, and thanklessness. Now, what is it that happens next after the therefore? Point number two, the release, the release. Look at verse 24 and the beginning of verse 26. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now down to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. There's the release. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. How does one develop an appetite for this perversion? Most today will claim and argue vehemently that these people were born that way and that they could not help it any more than they could determine the color of their eyes. That is false based upon this text of Scripture. Others will claim that it is a matter of environment and culture and upbringing, influences from the outside, that something was done to a child which has impacted them in a way which has caused them to be this way. Now, I will say with certainty, it, it, it is most certainly true that our environment does have an impact upon us and that we are influenced. But it is not unique with respect to this sin. In fact, all of us are impacted both positively and negatively in our upbringing in all things. We cannot deny the influence of those around us or those who brought us up, but the way one was raised is not the bottom line, and if we stick with the text, it is not even the most powerful force in one engaging in this sin. Still others will claim that this is 100% a volitional choice. Just like you wake up one day and say, I'm going to wear the blue shirt instead of the red shirt, so too they wake up one day in an arbitrary way and make this sinful choice, and it's nothing more than that. Well, it certainly is a choice, and it certainly is a sinful choice, but it is not a choice which is one which arbitrarily one just decides to follow. It's a choice which carries with it responsibility and culpability. But according to the text, remember we're going to stick with the text, according to Romans 1, 24 and 26, we cannot say that it is solely a natural, normal human decision um, where you just wake up one day and say for no reason at all, I, I as a man am going to start pursuing other males. 
It goes deeper than that, and here's where you need to pay close attention. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and verse 26, the primary reason why this sin exists is because God, as an act of wrath and judgment, turns people over to this perversion. Now, some would argue and say, that can't possibly be right because God hates sin. In James chapter 1, verse 13, says that God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And I would say, amen, hallelujah, that is correct. But if you read Romans 1, 24 and 26, you will note that nowhere in these verses does it teach that God is tempting someone to be attracted to someone else of the same gender. The verse in 24, verses in 24 and 26 say, God gave them up. God gave them up. And then again, later in verse 28, once again, it will say, God gave them up to a debased mind. Please note, it does not say God gave up on them. Rather, it says he gave them up. Literally, it means he handed them over. And what this is, it is a play on words which envisions someone in the criminal justice system being handed over as a prisoner. Jesus uses this language in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.25. Jesus says, Come quickly to terms with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over. That hand you over is the same language as gives you up or gives you over or releases you. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Frequently, the whole idea of giving someone up or giving someone over or, or releasing that person it, it appears in the Old Testament. Usually, it is in a military context. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 14, when Melchizedek is blessing Abram, he said in Genesis 14, 20, Blessed be God most high who has delivered. In the Septuagint, that word delivered means given them up or releasing them or giving them over. God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And so just as God gave up or gave over or released the wicked kings into the hands of Abram, so too God in an act of wrath and judgment gives these individuals up. He hands them over. He releases them from his protection and from his restraining grace. Which begs the question, to whom or to what does God release this person? In other words, he gives them up to what? Is it to the devil? Well, not according to Romans chapter 1. Is it to a progressive society? Nope. Is it to the educational system which promotes this lifestyle? Not at all. Is it that he gives them up to other wicked, twisted people who will influence them to do wrong? Not at all. It's none of that. In fact, it is far worse. Here's what God does, according to Romans 1.24. God hands you over to you. God hands you over to you. That is the release. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts 
of their hearts, of their hearts, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, in verses 26 and 27, he's going to define what the impurity is and how exactly they dishonor their bodies. But for right now, it's important that you see that the source of this sin is not society. It is not your upbringing. You were not born this way. It is not the media. It is not your education You didn't just wake up one day and make this choice naturally to select this perversion. But at its very heart, it is God removing his restraining hand of grace and giving people up to themselves, releasing them from his grip of love and protection, turning them over to their own wicked hearts. And this sin only happens when God himself abandons people. Now, there's a debate among commentators, and I think it's a worthy debate as to whether or not this action of God in giving them up or giving them over is active or passive. There are many who will argue for God being passive in the process. They will put it this way. For example, Chrysostom, who died in the year 407, a prolific preacher, said, God left them to their own concoctions. Or St. Augustine. I mean, who doesn't respect St. Augustine? He argued for a passive approach. Augustine, who died in the year 430, said, God abandoned them to the desires of their own hearts. Or even more recently, Frederick Louis Godet, who died in the year 1900, comments and says, God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. There are others who say, no, I believe God was more active in this process of handing people over. Douglas Moo, who's written a a very thick commentary on the book of Romans, and he's living still today, he has another take on the matter, and he says, God does not simply let the boat go, but he gives it a push downstream. Now, I am not exactly sure how active or passive God is in this process, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because if God is not there, then God is not there. Uh, The only important truth to note is that God is no longer at work in restraining the passions of these sinners. They are on their own. They have been left to themselves. Uh, They chose not to honor God nor to be thankful. That's the root. And in response, what God has done is he has released them. And what follows is that they dishonor themselves. Did you note that earlier? What they did not do is they did not honor God. Now, because they have chosen not to honor God, what God allows them to do is to dishonor themselves through unnatural, same-gender, intimate relations. Again, back in verse 21, they did not honor him as God. The punishment, verse 24, God gave them up to the dishonoring. Literally, the word means the degrading of their bodies among themselves. It's very important that you see that the punishment for their sin is that they are given up to and released to the slavery of a sin that is worse. Let me say that again. Sin is what they commit. 
There is a consequence for sin. The wages of sin is death. The punishment for this particular sin of not honoring God is that they are released to a worse form of sin. The sin to which they are delivered is is already in the impurity of their own hearts, and the expression of this sin is the degrading or the dishonoring of their bodies with one another. Let me put it in another way, which would maybe make it more applicable to how we think and how we interact in this world. The reason why we as Christians, who, who have natural affections, who, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the reason why we should never under any circumstances make fun of or look down on or think ourselves better than those who are enslaved in this sin is because if God were to take his restraining hand off of you or me, in other words, if he were to give us up, if he were to release us over to the impurity of our own hearts, we too would have the desire, and we would follow through with the degrading of our bodies with one another exactly the way the people in these verses do. In other words, there but by the grace of God go I. And you say, wait a minute. I've never even had the slightest temptation to be with someone of my own gender. Well, I believe you, and I'm I'm, I'm with you right there. That's me too. However, what I want you to note is that the only reason that that is true is not because of our moral superiority. The reason that that is true is because God, in his sovereign, loving kindness and good mercy, has not released or given me or you over to that. For dormant within us, latent within my own heart, is every form of theft and deception and idolatry and murder and terrorism and blasphemy and perversion. Every kind is right there in my own heart. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And the only reason that I am not totally myself is that God has not yet given me over to me or God has not released me, but he has his loving restraining hand upon me. And the only reason why those who do practice this perversion found in this text are doing it is because God, at least for now, has given them over to themselves. In other words, he has released them. And you might say, wait a minute. Are you, pastor, saying that, that those who, who have the most blasphemous forms of, of thanklessness and idolatry and not honoring God are the only ones that God turns over to this perversion? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that God is sovereign and he does exactly what he wants to do. And he is a God of sovereign mercy. And I am saying that there is none righteous, no, not one. And there is no one who in and of themselves is deserving of being held back from this sin. And God would be justified to release all of us to ourselves, even as he did in the city of Sodom. You understand what God did in Sodom? He withdrew his hand of sovereign mercy and restraint from all of the men of that city. 
Friends, if God withdrew his hand from us, we would all be in that state. There is none righteous, no, not one. Because no one has honored or worshiped God adequately. We are all idolaters. No one has been sufficiently thankful. We have all dishonored God. But in his sovereign mercy and his common grace, he does not release or give up every idolater, but he certainly has the right to do that. And we have certainly earned that. And ironically, since the Garden of Eden, there's only one thing that we have ever wanted from God. You know what it is? We want him to leave us alone. That's what we want by nature. Every time you commit a sin, what you are saying is, God, get out of here and leave me alone. Leave me to myself. And the bottom line of understanding this perversion is that what God is actually doing is he is granting that request. He is leaving that person alone. God is backing off and letting a person be all that they themselves are in the depths of their depraved hearts. You see a child who's running around, who is misbehaving, and although that child might be an annoyance to you and you might be somewhat perturbed with the child, if you're thinking through it properly, what you are saying to yourself is this. Does the child have any parents? Or are they just left to themselves? Well, likewise, we see someone who is twisted and away from God's original design, a, 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 a man who seeks another man or a woman who seeks another woman. And, 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 and that is going on. When you look at them, you have to conclude, is anyone holding them back? Do, do they have any parents? Is there any kind of restraint that's going on at all? When you see that kind of, of, of perversion going on, there are a lot of conclusions that can be drawn, and most of them are false. Even within Christianity today, most of them are false. But here's what we do know with certainty to be true, and that is a very serious and very dangerous thing is happening, and that is that God, for now, has removed his loving hand of restraint and to some extent, he is demonstrating his wrath and his judgment by leaving that person to themselves. It is the release. On the other hand, if you see someone who is normal in their natural affections for someone, that is a man who desires a woman or a woman who desires a man, these normal desires in this fallen world, given the wickedness of our hearts, it's just a kind gift from God. It is his restraining grace. You might make an observation, and I don't know the statistics. I, I don't know what's going on. But you, but, you, but you might make the point that the society in which we are living is more and more being given over. Not just individuals who are being released from the restraining hand of God, but, but, it, but it seems like there is a groundswell of, of, of societal abandonment. I think you get my point. Number one, the root. 
not honoring God. Number two, the release. God removes his restraint from their wicked hearts, which brings us to point number three, and that is the reason. This should be a short point. It's not going to be, but it should be a a short point uh, because it's almost identical to the root. Look in verses 25 and the beginning of verse 26. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Here's the reason. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And for this reason, there's the why, the reason, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. One key concept in this entire discussion is the whole idea of exchange or trade. And it goes back to the Garden of Eden, to our first parents, who freely traded away love and joy in life for sorrow and pain and death. And the reason they made that trade, and they were happy to make that trade, is because they did not believe God, and, and, and they wanted their release from God and from his law. And since that first sin in the Garden of Eden up to today, it has been an uphill struggle for mankind to think straight. Now, we do think straight, but we do not think as straight as we possibly should. Our natural tendency is to turn things upside down and to sincerely view the distorted as though it was correct. And so rather than to honor God and to thank God and to worship him as the creator, we, left to ourselves, worship and serve what is created or we engage in idolatry. And verse 23 says, we trade or exchange the glory of God for images that resemble his creation. And then almost identically, in verse 25, two verses later, he says, we trade or exchange the truth about God for lies and once again worship and serve someone or something other than him. It is a dismissal of God and his truth. I do not want you, God. I am trading you away. Well, what you get in exchange is not nothing, but what you get in exchange is a distorted and a twisted mind, the embracing of lies. And so when you make that trade, God allows you to live in an upside-down world, and you will not even detect that you are living in that upside-down world. You might have noted my frequent use of the word perversion in this sermon. That is intentional, that is on purpose. Here's the definition of perversion. It is the alteration of something from its original course, meaning or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. Let me repeat that. Here's what perversion is. It's an alteration of something from its original Course, meaning, or state to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended, which begs the question, what did God originally intend? And Jesus puts it very well in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is natural, that is normal, that is God's design. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. He in the Garden of Eden sets forth the sanctity of marriage. And God knows more about intimate relations than we do. He knows more about intimate relations than anyone. He designed it. He invented it. He created it. And the design was that there would be one man with one woman joined together in marriage. And any variation of that is a distortion from its original intention. But when the distortion moves to an unnatural level, in other words, a man with a man or a woman with a woman, it is going against his design and it is going against nature. A a, a man with a man, or even a man who wants to be with a man, or a woman with a woman, or even a woman who wants to be with a woman, that is an upside-down world. It is a perversion of God's original intention. Now, remember our point now. We are looking at the reason. Why does this happen? The reason why people think and crave and behave in such a way, according to verse 25, is because they have volitionally traded away or exchanged the truth of God for a lie. True worship of the Creator in exchange for idolatry. And so we read at the beginning of verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The reason God releases people into a fantasy world of distorted thinking is because, here's the reason, because they themselves volitionally chose a path of distorted thinking when they traded God away in exchange for a lie, when they rejected him as creator, when they were not thankful, and they chose idolatry instead. Here's the key. I know that the argument is, is prolonged, but, but, but if you can track, this will be helpful for you in understanding this perversion. Here's the key. When you reject the truth of God and choose an idol instead, you are Alice in Wonderland. You have jumped into the rabbit hole And now you are in wonderland where the rules of truth and logic and nature no longer apply. You look in a mirror, you should be right side up, but now you are upside down. You want to go get something, the way that you go to get it is to move in the opposite direction. We are Alice in Wonderland with a distorted reality because now we have received or bought the lie. It rules the way that we think. It seems perfectly sane and perfectly normal for two men to be married who are in wonderland. Why? Because you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm certainly not trying to be cruel. But when you see a man, even though that that person may have been surgically altered, they are still a man, and they are standing on the top platform of a swimming competition receiving a gold medal, and you see a female, an actual female, taking the silver and the bronze, and people will will fight for this, that, 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 that this is good, that this is normal. The people who are endorsing this, they're not trying to make us angry. 
that they're not trying to, to trick us or to fool us. They sincerely believe that that is acceptable. Why? Because they are Alice in Wonderland. They're living in a world which is upside down and is distorted because they have chosen to exchange God for a lie. You would say, well, isn't it just sane? Isn't it just common sense that you would think that like, if there is a bathroom, that that, 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 that bathroom would be gender-specific? Those that say, no, I think a bathroom is a bathroom and anybody can go in there and you can go in there together with people that are like you and people that are not like you. They're not doing this in order to make us mad or just to get under our skin. They actually believe that that is normal. Why? They are Alice in Wonderland. There is a distortion. There is a turning upside down of the world. And so whether it is God standing by and allowing the boat to drift off or whether it is God actually giving the boat a push, it really doesn't make any difference. The point of it is that the truth of God is no longer there because God is no longer there. And the voice of truth is either absent or very, very faint. And all of a sudden, Alice, the room and the world is upside down. God says, you want to embrace a lie? Have I got a lie for you? Men will be with men, and men will desire men. And women will be with women, and women will desire women. That is the reason he gave them up to unclean passions. And note the strong language. This is really important, the strong language that Paul uses to describe the reason why God should and must be worshipped. Verse 25, God is said to be the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God is the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul is not using this strong language about the glory of God as a doxology of praise for God because his heart at this point is so filled and enraptured with the awe and the majesty of God. That's not the reason he uses these words of greatness concerning God right now. Paul is going overboard and being almost sarcastic about the greatness of God in order to express the majesty of God set side by side with the ridiculous, just just inaccurate uh, worship of idols, and 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 anybody that would reject God, just the the idiocy of rejecting God. But he accentuates who God is in order to accentuate the absurdity of doing away with Him and His truth, the unthinkableness of uh, dismissing Him in favor of created objects. In other words, do you realize who you have just silenced? He is the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He made you. He made everything. And he alone is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So you didn't just diss a mayor or a governor or or, or a president or even a king. You have traded away the truth of the supreme ruler of the universe. And God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The punishment does fit the crime. When you trade away God for the lie, 
and you make that distortion of, of worshiping the creature rather than the creator, he comes right back at you, and he comes right back at you hard, and he says, you, you, you want to twist things around? I'll show you how things are twist around. God is not mocked. You sow the seeds of silencing God's truth, you will reap the whirlwind of God's wrath in the form of being permitted to believe deep in your heart of hearts some really funky lies. Again, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, which brings us to our fourth and final point today, and that is the result. Continuing in verse 26, reading through verse 27, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Note, please, that the women are mentioned first. Perhaps the reason that Paul does this is that he is drawing a parallel between what is happening here and what happened in the Garden of Eden where truth was first exchanged for a lie. I think a further proof that Paul might be trying to put a Garden of Eden parallel here is the fact that in the Greek language, Paul does not use in Romans 1 the normal words that he would use for man and woman. Rather, he uses the words which are in the Septuagint, going back to Genesis 1.27, referring to male and female. But regardless of why the ladies are mentioned first, it's clear that both men and women are engaged in this sin and are both guilty before God. And that the sin of the woman is as the sin of the man, as evidenced by the word in verse 27, likewise. Notice also in reference to women here, what is stated And in the previous point, and I bring up again now, is that it is unnatural, that it is against nature. These are not societal norms. Someone will try to tell you, listen, it used to be in society that you would have a man with a man, I'm sorry, a man with a woman and a woman with a man. That's the way it used to be. Now society has changed and the norm now is you can do whatever you want. And Paul says, this has nothing whatsoever to do with society This has to do with nature. It is clear from nature. Basic biology, reproduction tells you that this is against nature. And remember that nature has as its author and designer God Almighty. But you don't even need a Bible to to deduce that this is contrary to nature. Two women can adopt a child, but they cannot have a baby together. Why? Because the relationship is against nature. And as we move into verse 27 to talk about the men, it is equally unnatural. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. It's the upside down world that God has released them into. But it's worse than just unnatural. Paul says the sin that God has handed them over to carries with it a base, wicked craving. This is where it starts to get really bad. Verse 27, 
the men were consumed or literally burning with passion for one another. Once again, we are talking about the wrath of God being revealed. If it would be an impulse on your part to be with someone of your same gender and that would, that would grow into a burning or, or a passion, understand that that passion in and of itself is, 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 is an indicator of the wrath and judgment of God. Romans 1.27 doesn't say that the wrath of God comes in the form of striking these people dead immediately. It comes in the form of allowing sin to flourish and grow to the point of passionate burning cravings. And when a man gets to the point that they burn with passion or desire for another man, that urge is nothing more than the wrath and judgment of God. Sin is the penalty for sin. I'm not denying the final judgment of hell, and neither does Paul deny that, because in Romans 2.5, he talks about the day of wrath. What I'm doing is simply sticking to the text and telling you that the sin itself, in and of itself, is the wrath of God. We read two frightening verses in Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. But my people did not listen to my voice, God says. Israel would not submit to me. So, or therefore, so, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. You don't want God giving you over to you. Now today, I have mostly been talking about them as if no one here in this room has experiential knowledge with this perversion or the desire for this perversion. But in a room this size, my guess would be that there would be some here today who are living in, or at least they have a desire to live in that upside-down world of perversion. And as you well know, you are not going to be helped by Christians belittling you. And as you also have discovered, you have not been really helped by Christians coddling you or or being sympathetic to your lifestyle. You have an unnatural burning or passion, and you don't know how to shake it, and maybe you don't even want to shake it, and the fact that you do not want to shake it is even further evidence of your distance from God and your release from Him. But whatever the case, based upon the text today, It really makes no substantial difference how you are treated by your fellow man in terms of receiving help. There's not a man in the world that can help you. Those who slander you do not ease your sinful passion or your burning, or even preachers that get up and are cruel and speak in derogatory ways to you. You know that you are not helped by that, but you also know that those who gently sympathize with you, they do not ease nor can they dissipate the passion or the burning of your sinful heart. This is something that is between you and God, and he's the one who has to help you. And please do not go to him looking for sympathy, saying, Lord, you know how I struggle, and Lord, you know that this is my bent and my leaning. Friend, God knows that, and the reason that God knows that is because he is the one who released you, and he is the one who allowed you to chase and to catch that sin. 
And so if you want help from him, and he can help you, you have to acknowledge that you want out and that he alone can deliver you. And that burning passion is a sign that God is very far away from you and that you are alone and that you have been left to yourself. And this is very sad. This is why we should never look down upon those that are enslaved to this. It is very sad. They need God. You have no one to blame but yourself. And the text goes on to say, men committing shameless acts with men. Thankfully, Paul does not get graphic here or describe it any more than that. I think we know what he is talking about. What I want to stress is is the fact that these acts are shameless. Nature will tell you it is shameful. A functional conscience will tell you it is shameful. A Bible will tell you that it is shameful. It used to be in society in the United States of America that they would tell you that this is shameful. There is a justifiable shame associated with this sin. But in order to combat this sin, they treat it not as shameful, but shameless. Man doubles down and goes to war with God. And what is the appropriate and fitting way that it has now been dubbed? It is now pride. And so we will have Pride Month in June. Oftentimes, the sin of people is described in words which are euphemistic and just errant. But in this particular case, it in actuality is accurate. It is pride. It is, you will not tell me what to do. You you will not tell me to keep a lid on it. We are compounding the sin by sticking the middle finger up to God. Not only am I going to do this, but I'm proud of it. Years ago, we spoke of those who were in the closet, and they were urged to come out. I would say, biblically speaking, the shameless degree to which one comes out of the closet, and by that I mean the way that they flaunt or identify or unashamedly express their liberty with marches or the waving of the rainbow flag or the indulgences or the intentional uh, projection of a an effeminate persona or with women an intentional persona of a Um, uh, expression of a masculine persona, the degree to which one comes out pridefully, to that degree, these poor souls have been abandoned by God. I'm not saying that those who are in the closet are, are, are not guilty, but I'm saying they have not yet been released as much as the ones who are flaunting it. And so when you see them Yes, to be grieved by what's going on, but more than that, to feel brokenhearted because that person is so far away from God and they desperately need God. And this is what Paul means in the final phrase of verse 27, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You see, sin is the punishment for sin 
and sin is the due penalty for sin, and in this particular case, it is the slavery and the tyranny and the seemingly inescapable prison of sadness and sorrow. So that's the text. Nine observations as we close. Number one, me, myself, in order to accentuate the importance of the text today, I did everything I could to get us glued to Paul's content and to Paul's argument. And so what I have done today is I have intentionally steered away from politics and humor and illustrations and explicit language. I've sought to curb the rhetoric and the emotion and the catchphrases associated with this topic. And even by using the words, this topic, I'm intentionally trying to stay clear of that which causes unnecessary and unhelpful distance. Hopefully, you know now the text and you know Paul's argument in the text. And that was my only goal. It was not to give joy to those that are not in this. It was not to inflame or to anger those who are. I simply wanted you to see what the text said, and so I tried to stay away from anything that was unnecessary, peripheral, or fringe. Number two, please know that all intimate relations outside of marriage bring the wrath of God. Now, Today's topic was not designed to pick on anyone. I'm going through the book of Romans. This is where we happen to be in the book of Romans. I did not go into other forms of disobedience to God with respect to natural intimate relations outside of marriage because the text didn't go into that. The topic deserved its own sermon, and so once again, I stuck to the text. But I'm not denying that all intimacy outside of marriage is bringing about the wrath and the judgment of God. Number three, and closely related, hell awaits those who do not repent of this sin. Not only is sin the penalty for this sin in the here and now, but hell awaits those in the life to come. Today's text simply spells out the penalty in this life. Number four, and closely related and almost redundant, And that is that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You cannot claim to be a Christian and live in this immorality. Number five, although this sin varies in degree from one person to the next, in other words, we talked about those who are in the closet and those that are flaunting it, those that only have these feelings and those that are acting upon these feelings, some are worse than others. But, but nevertheless, here's what I want to point out in number five, and that is that all expressions of this sin, whether they are carried out with another person or only entertained in the mind and the heart, they are all evil. And I am rather uncomfortable with the category of someone claiming that they identify they identify as one who 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 is drawn to people of the same gender and claiming that they have these desires yet they choose to live in obedience to God they choose to live a celibate life first of all let me say it is good that they do not act upon it it is good that they do lead a celibate life however The fact that this desire even exists is not okay. 
And I realize that I hold a minority position among most pastors today because there are some churches or even denominations that say it is okay to feel this way, it is okay to identify this way as long as you do not act upon it. I think based upon the fact that it is unnatural and God is the one who is actually pushing this one away, therefore one by grace should seek repentance from God to be delivered from this altogether, not only the action but also the desire in their heart. Now, I'm not saying that this is the worst sin of all, but what I am saying is it is unnatural and it is a sin which is marked by God himself opposing you, and therefore I think that many are too soft on what repentance looks like. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that in all ways we should strive for this to be eradicated completely from our hearts. Number six, Parents, I would charge you by grace, please strive to promote and celebrate the masculinity of your sons and the femininity of your daughters, because nature will never change. Yet you need to know that there is a war being raged against you, and those who promote the unnatural will intentionally try to feminize your sons and make your daughters more masculine. Your job is to protect your children. Number seven. If you are in this sin, it is understandable that you would not want anything to do with people who would bash you with hate speech. I've already told you, and I'm even going to tell you again, that they can't help you, but you know that already. At the same time, here's your application point. If you're in this sin or wish to be in this sin, stop talking to people, especially well-meaning Christians, who will sympathize with you and coddle you and say, it's not that bad. These folks, I'm sure they have the best of intentions, but they cannot help you. So stop talking to them. Stop going to them for comfort and confirmation. Go to a loving, trusted Christian who will be your actual friend and call you to repentance and who will warn you of the wrath to come and who will point you to Jesus who is the Savior of sinners. Two more. Number eight, go to God. If you are struggling with this sin, go to God because right now he's the only one that can help you. You may view him as your enemy because he will not condone your sinful lifestyle. He is not your enemy. He is your friend. And might I add, he is the only friend that you have who can help you. And your heart is so sinful and your mind is so twisted, Alice in Wonderland, that what you will tell you is to stay away from God. I'm telling you, He can help you go to him. Cry out to him for mercy in the name of Jesus. You say, I don't even have a desire to repent of this sin. Go to God and ask him to restore your senses and to bring you back to a place where you are thinking correctly, where you can exit the rabbit hole and come back into reality. Ask God to help you He is the only one who can help you, which brings us to the final and the most important point, and that is that the gospel is of first importance. There is hope in Jesus Christ and his precious blood. 
There have been some who have read these verses and they have felt that God has abandoned them permanently. That is not true. And let me explain to you why that is not true. And it is important that you see this. I know that we've been here for a long time, but you need to get this. There is hope, and that hope is in Jesus Christ, based upon the fact that what Paul says here, he says in a description of the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul is speaking about sin, especially how it is expressed among the Gentiles. When he gets to chapter 2, what Paul is going to do, he's going to talk about sin, especially as it is expressed by the Jews. When he gets to chapter 3, he's going to put these two together, and he's going to come to this conclusion, 3.22, there is no distinction. There is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. And then 3.23, which you know all so well, for all, that is both Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles who, as a matter of culture and practice, are involved in attraction and the carrying out of intimacy with one another, all are included in this, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Keep reading. 3.24. And are justified. These Gentiles who are engaged in this sin are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the sins of the Gentiles, including today's topic, and the sins of the Jews, which are spelled out in chapter 2, make absolutely no difference to God. Jesus Christ can forgive anyone no matter what they've done. Why in the world would Paul, as a description of his gospel, include this sin in here if there was ultimately no hope for these people and they were permanently abandoned? It's just bad logic. It's just bad theology. It's just in no way helpful. No, this is included here because Paul wants to stress that the vilest offender that truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. There is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And those who are guilty of little white lies and those who are guilty of the sin which is expressed in these verses today are justified through his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus can offer forgiveness and save and deliver and grant repentance to anyone, no matter what they've done or where they've been. On the cross, God did not merely take his hands off and watch Jesus drift away. In fact, he didn't even just give the boat a push. God himself at the cross, no doubt, was active. And he was active in the crushing of sin. He sees in his son on that tree the sin of every man that has ever sought after and been with another man or every woman who has sought after and been with another woman among his elect. And when he sees it, there is fury and there is wrath and there is active anger on the part of God in that it pleased the Lord to crush him and to bruise him and to make his soul an offering for sin. God gets involved in the sin that you've committed and he puts it to death by putting his son to death and punishing his son for it, where real wrath is expressed and the hair on the back of God's neck stands up and he vents his full anger against sin in the person of his son so that you, regardless of what you have done or what you have thought or desired to do, can be 
forgiven. God actively pours out his wrath upon his son and kills him because Jesus takes your sin upon himself, all of your sin, even your sins of perversion. So that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is when you say, ah, I am sick of this and, and I want out of this and I need deliverance. Oh, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. Oh, Jesus, I believe that you rose for my justification. Oh, God, have mercy upon me. God hears that prayer and God delivers that individual. Now, I am very sorry. I'm extremely sorry that up to this point in the sermon, there has been very little gospel and there has been very little Jesus. I needed to spell out the text and to demonstrate how serious this is. But friends, there is plenty of Jesus right here. There's plenty of gospel right here. Just call out to him for deliverance. There is hope. One final word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then later in that verse, he mentions who will not inherit the kingdom of God, who those unrighteous ones are. And in that list, he mentions those who practice the sin that we discuss today. And then at the end of verse 10, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 10, and he reiterates this, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then we come to verse 11, and ridiculously, in a form of amazing grace, there is something here which which makes me want to cry, and, and and it just causes my heart to explode with love for the Lord because there's something inexplicable here which I cannot I, I I cannot I cannot wrap my mind about, and it says. And such were, W-E-R-E, not are, but were, some of you. But something happened to you, but you were washed. That is the gospel by the blood of Jesus. But you were sanctified. You were declared to be holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, in the courtroom of heaven, God says, not guilty. And he says, I grant you the righteousness of my son Christ. So there is hope in Jesus. Jesus can help you. Jesus can save you. I've said this all day, and I'm going to say it again. You know that you are not helped by people who belittle you or people who just tell you to change or people who just tell you what's wrong with you or, or are mean or cruel to you. And you know, even though it feels much better, you know that you are not helped by people who coddle you and put, your, put their arm around you and say, it's okay, God understands. No, he doesn't understand. It's not good. You're not helped by people who coddle you. You are helped only by going to God himself and by saying, I'm wicked, I'm sorry, I'm guilty, I'm finished with this, I'm lost, I need Jesus, I need forgiveness, I need help, I need mercy. Jesus, deliver me and Jesus, save me. If you need someone further to talk to about this, we stand ready to speak to you about this to give you help. All right, that's all I have to say today. 27 down, 406 to go, which means what? means we're getting there. means we're getting there. Father in heaven, um, unless you in your kindness choose to deliver, Lord, we, all of us, we are 
forever lost. Lord, thank you that you have offered salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, God, would you please grant the faith that we might embrace your dear Son and that his gospel might have a saving and transforming impact upon our lives. Cause us, Lord, always to worship you, for you are worthy. Cause us to be fearful not to worship you. Cause us, Lord, to be fearful to be idolaters. Cause us, Lord, to honor you, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.